Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to reply, guys. Hello, and welcome back to Reply, guys. I am so excited today to be joined by yet another uh, congressional candidate running for Congress in New York's 11th district, Brittany Ramos de Barros. Brittany, welcome to the show. Thanks, Julia. I'm a fan. I'm so excited to be here. We are so thrilled to have you for a number of reasons, uh, chief among them probably because, uh, you know, as listeners of the show know, Kate and I live here in New York City. We talk about New York all the time. We have, you know, New York activists and organizers on the show very often. But Staten Island is the borough that I am the least familiar with. And I'm embarrassed to say that I've never been there (laughs) myself. Uh, So could you tell us a little bit about uh, New York's 11th district and, uh, and who your constituents are? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I would, you know, I would just like to confirm that I am judging you for not having been to our borough. (laughs) But but also you're not alone. I think that it's probably a majority of New Yorkers who don't live in Staten Island who have not been here. And that's why I'm so excited to be building a really robust people-powered, really movement is what we're looking to build. And I know that that's become the kind of catchphrase for, you know, progressive candidates. But, um, you know, as a person who is coming from organizing and from movement, um, I'm really serious about that. And it's a huge part of why I said yes, because organizers who I respect, who were born and raised in this district, who have seen us go through a revolving door of candidates and officials and representatives in particular for over a decade, we've had a new congressional rep every two years. That's wild, you know? And so what we see is this consistent, we've had Republicans elected here, we've had Democrats elected here, but they're consistently rejected after one term. Um, And I think that a lot of folks, there's there's a lot of assumptions about why that is, but the folks that came to me and asked me to run have, like I said, been raised in this district. We've we've knocked thousands and thousands of doors between me and the other members of the team now in this district, including across Staten Island. And there's this assumption that it's so conservative here. But what I actually hear at the door most of the time is just dissatisfaction with the political establishment, period. People feel abandoned and dissatisfied with both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Um, And I think that you can see that that is the sentiment when you look at a lot of different, you know, facts and figures in the data, including the fact that, yes, Trump won here, won the primary here, but Bernie also won the primary here. And it's actually the only district in New York, you know, New York City area where Bernie won the primary. And so, you know, what we actually have is a very working class, blue collar district of, you know, of people who know that the political establishment has not been fighting for them and and working class people in general, the way that we deserve to expect for them to be fighting for us. And so, you know, I think that there's a lot of opportunity here. And even beyond that, um, you know, when you look at the numbers of the district, People are often shocked to hear that Democrats outnumber Republicans two to one here. We there are about 200,000 registered Democrats and progressives here to about 100,000 registered Republicans. And then there's another about 200,000 potential voters who are not engaging in voting or registered with a party. And so when we look at that and we look at the fact that the district is um It's the most rapidly diversifying district in New York. It's getting younger. It's getting more diverse. Um, And, you know, I really think that we're we're poised when we look at all of those opportunities, right, in those numbers to really do something historic here. Um, And that's what the team, you know, said that they wanted to do when they came to me and were like, we want you to run. And I was like, I can't run. I curse like a sailor. I like... 
love burlesque. I, you know, all of these things that. Um... First of all, I just want to say that uh, we need more politicians who swear. Uh, <laughs> I, every once in a while, you get you get someone who does, and I think it's so refreshing because it just is how a lot of normal people talk. Like even you know. Even though she is, uh, you know, she's an establishment dem, I, I really appreciate when Kirsten Gillibrand uh, <laughs> uh, swears after the 2016 election. She said, like, people, people feel abandoned by the Democratic Party because we're not helping them. And she said, if we're not helping them, what the fuck are we doing here? And I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is that's the kind of thing that people ultimately want to hear. And uh people are looking for authenticity some shred of authenticity in the people who represent them of course um so so tell me a little bit about uh your backstory i know from uh your 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 comms uh team that you were an army brat growing up and that you are uh, a veteran yourself i would love to hear i think you are one of the first people with real military experience that uh that we've spoken to on this show if i'm mm. erasing someone i'm so sorry we've done a thousand episodes <laughs> i don't remember but i would yeah. love to hear more about that yeah absolutely well you know and on the on the cursing front i feel like it's a perfect segue because you know i mean part of why i i said that to them i was like i can't be this buttoned up respectable person that I guess I perceived that you have to be because so many of these issues are so visceral for me. You know, when we talk about the military and war and veterans, I feel like there's this dog and pony show that is often put on about patriotism and all of these like really uplifting. They try to turn it into this inspiring thing. And I'm just like, we're bombing the shit out of six plus countries on any given day. That is catastrophic levels of violence for U.S. troops to be experiencing, but even more robustly for those people living in those countries to be experiencing at our hands. And so I just, you know, I just can't. I think that we do need more people who are coming from a place of really embodied outrage um, about what we're really talking about, um, because it's just become so quiet and so invisible. And so the way that I got to that kind of positioning is, yes, I grew up in a conservative military family, but my parents were also very independent thinkers and they really instilled this sense of service and justice. Um, and that that was why they were, you know, for them, that's what it was actually about, right? These values that America was supposed to be about. And they really instilled a sense of love for those ideas in me growing up, but I'm also biracial. And so I could look around even as a child and see that the America that my white family was experiencing was not the America that my black Puerto Rican family was experiencing. And so that raised early questions. And they also really, you know, kind of had this narrative of, you know, the kind of bootstrapping narrative, right? Of if anyone works hard enough, you can pull yourself up and make it in America. It's the land of opportunity. And yet I watched them and so many people around us work incredibly hard, work multiple jobs, and we were still struggling to keep our house. Our, you know, our church friends were bringing us groceries to get by. And so again, I was in this position to be like, this something doesn't add up here. But I ended up going to college on an army scholarship, which because I know a lot of folks, especially you know, um, maybe on the left don't know a lot about how these systems work because there is a kind of disconnect um, about just like how the whole military system works, right? There's like, few, there's a lot less exposure, I think, to folks who have had that experience. So I signed, I got an ROTC scholarship to pay for college and I signed that contract at 18 that lasted until I was 30. And that's also kind of wild that we allow, you know, teenagers whose brains aren't even fully formed to sign a contract that um, essentially boils down to agreeing to kill and potentially die on command for the government in exchange for college. 
like in exchange for education. And I say it that way. You know, I think it's jarring for some folks when I say it that way, but because there's we use so many euphemisms about what people are doing when they sign up for the military. And I think it's important to name that that is what a military is for. Right. It's designed. It is designed to maximize violence. And the way that it's existing is like we have our teenagers, right, agreeing to this exchange and we need to call it what it is, at least. Right. We at least need to be truthful. Um, so anyway, by the time I graduated, I was a platoon leader. I'm, I commissioned as an army officer, um, originally as a logistics officer, and I was a platoon leader for a maintenance platoon in an engineer battalion and went, you know, already had deployment orders for Afghanistan. And I went, I had become more and more politicized. My worldview was really expanding, but I still had, I was still this true believer. I still believed, okay, well, there are some problems, right? We need to change some policies, but we're still the good guys. We overall, I'm going to help the Afghan people. I'm going to fight for freedom, protect people. Um, Spread democracy. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And yet when I got there, it just became impossible for me to deny what I was seeing with my own eyes, which was that we were doing catastrophic harm, that we were doing so much more harm than good, Um, even if we had the best of intentions, right? That was the reality that I I just had no choice but to face. And so I came home angry and hurt and I, um, you know, trying to make sense of like, what was even the point of all of this? And, you know, I think I still had this hunger to serve that felt unfulfilled and I That led me to get involved in economic and racial justice work, but I didn't talk much. I still had this reserve contract. I went to psychological operations school because I was, you know, the army realized I was, I was talented at connecting with people and messaging. And so they sent me to school to try to (laughs) benefit themselves, you know, from that. And, um, at the time I was like, okay, you know, and so. I uh, became a psychological operations officer and became a commander of a PSYOP detachment. And I um, just kind of kept my head down. I told myself, you don't, you know, you don't have any choice. Just do the best you can. At least you're not supporting the war directly. But I knew, I knew when I came home, I didn't support the war. Um, But I think a lot of folks feel like they don't have a choice. Um, You know, I certainly couldn't afford to pay back all of the money that um, had been spent for me to go to college and, you know, my husband had all this college debt too, you know? And so it was really just like you, you kind of just, a lot of people in the army at that point talk about it, like almost like it's a prison sentence, right? Like how much time you got left. <laughs> and, um, and so that was def- very much the climate, especially as uh, Trump became president and, you know, the morale um, really took, took a dive even amongst more conservative troops. Um, and I, you know, but I also was, I was getting these 18 year olds, 19 year olds assigned to my command. And I took, I always have taken that responsibility that I'm responsible for their lives, right? I'm responsible. Um, and I have to take that really seriously. And they, you know, I would hear them say, I can't wait to deploy. I can't wait to, you know, and, and believing these really bright eyed things, seeing myself in them, seeing, you know, that they were going to go do great and just things to help, um, to help people. And I, I, you know, between that experience and when Colin Kaepernick took a knee and the backlash about what he was doing, which ostensibly, right, I think. I think if we really think about it, it should be a, a pretty patriotic thing, right? To be f- fighting for actual freedom, right? Um, I I saw that the backlash, right, was so was suddenly made about me, about veterans, about troops, right? And I was like, wait, I have I support this. Why is this being, uh, you know, attacked in my name essentially? And um. And so, you know, it that was a moment where really the connections really clicked of like, I'm here working on these racial and economic justice issues. But if we don't address this kind of empty nationalism, um, this like hide behind the flag bullshit that has been allowed, then it's it's constantly going to be weaponized. And everyone who actually tries to push us toward the values that we say we believe in is going to be ironically called on American and unpatriotic. And so that was a big moment for me. I joined About Face, Veterans Against the War. I joined the Poor People's Campaign and I started speaking out really publicly. 
And, you know, I know that this has turned into a really long story, but the, the, the kind of landing is that I then ended up being, I was splashed across the front page of the Army Times with a, he- a headline like an army officer goes on anti-military tirade. Um, and my tirade was that I had just shared facts, you know, real, really basic, Googleable, publicly available facts like the U.S. military is burning 10.3 million gallons of oil per day. Like, by the way, everyone should know that we're bombing at that time seven countries and they're all impoverished black, brown, Muslim countries. Um, and we should make that connection, right? And and several other things. And so, um, you know, I was threatened with court-martial, which is the military's version of criminal charges. Um, you know, I was, the recommendation was to court-martial me for conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman, which is still the title of that charge. Love that. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so then it became, you know, I it became a whole joke because I was like, yes, I've been unladylike my entire life. And I'm also very ungentlemanly. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, um, but, you, you know, I ended up getting out with an honorable discharge. And but I've been doing anti-war advocacy and really uplifting the intersections of war and militarism, you know, with our fight for investment in our communities, right? Like uh, for the last several years and and the importance of divesting from violence so that we can invest in life. So uh, this is just a, a very technical question about being, um, getting a, an honorable discharge uh, versus a dishonorable discharge. Um, with an honorable discharge, are you still entitled to your military benefits uh, and your pension? Yes. So I don't get a pension because I you have to usually, unless you're medically discharged because of, um, you know, a medical issue that happened while you were in the military or something like that, you have to put you have to be in for 20 years to get the retirement benefits. Um, but I do still have access to my, you know, my other veteran benefits. Um, and yes, that's what that means. And it's a big deal. Um, and it's something that we need to talk more about because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people out there throughout the course, particularly throughout the course of the last two decades of war of troops who came home traumatized or who were sexually assaulted in the military and they were less than honorably discharged um, for bullshit reasons. Um, And that is it, it for many people. It essentially is like having a felony on your record. It can limit your access to not just military benefits, but public poverty, housing benefits, et cetera, in general, it can make it incredibly difficult to get a job um, because it shows up on a, on a job screen, you know, a background check, just like a felony. Um, and there's a huge stigma about it, even though I know people who have a less than honorable discharge because they came back incredibly traumatized from three back-to-back deployments to Iraq and couldn't keep their room clean and literally got discharged for not keeping their room clean over the course of several weeks, which we all know, right? Like anyone who knows anything about mental health, like something like that is a symptom that is very connected to experiencing severe depression and anxiety as a result of PTSD. So that's just one example. Oh man, that is dark. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I... The, you know, you were talking about how you signed your contract at 18 and we we talk about this a lot actually just as it relates to student loans uh how you know you have people whose uh prefrontal cortex is not fully developed making the biggest financial decision of their life um it's you know doubly so for uh you know and i i I knew uh kids who were in uh, rotc in college um Basically, the and I I didn't grow up in 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 such a a school district, but I know that in many lower income school districts, you have ROTC tables just set up in the lunchroom uh, of um, and so you're inherently creating this 
militarized caste system where um, financially struggling people who don't see a, a way out otherwise are going and are predominantly black and brown are going to fight wars that that they don't fully understand the implications of, of course. Um, I certainly didn't understand the implications of the myriad wars we were fighting when I was 18. Um, and I didn't serve in the military. I, I think there is something like inherently immoral about that, of course. And as you said, uh, there is so much, there is such steep punishment for anyone who decides uh, to speak out. How is that like a self-sustaining model for the military? Yeah. Well, first, yeah, thank you for pointing that out. And we, you know, we refer to this as a poverty draft, right? We, ab we abolished the overt draft and we exchanged it for a poverty draft. And... Um, and, you know, I think that we need to acknowledge that war in modern history has always been that, right? It has been, it has been in many cases, quite literally a handful of rich white men in a room who decide to send thousands and thousands, if not million of other people's kids to go kill and die for their gain, right? Not for those people's gain, but for the people who are deciding to send them, you know, potential gain. And I, you know, and Smedley Butler, one of the most decorated vets in US military history was also an anti-war, became an anti-war activist around this, for this particular reason and popularized the now fairly famous phrase, war is a racket. Um, and I think that the reason why that's important as a place to start is because I agree, it is immoral. I think it's incredibly immoral. And I don't think that, um, you know, I think that the way that we address that is by addressing the economics. Um, and I think that we, you know, I think that we have to confront the reality that these wars are sold to us as something that we need to keep us safe. Um, and secondly, as something that, helps other people, right? Either by bringing them democracy or liberation or whatever it is, right? The whole Afghan women argument that Laura Bush made that I really believed when I deployed. Um, and that is in the news cycle all over again because of the, you know, a Afghanistan withdrawal. I can tell you one thing, it doesn't help Afghan women for us to be dropping record breaking numbers of bombs 20 years after we first invaded the country and killing literally thousands of civilians a year. That certainly doesn't help Afghan women, you know? And so when we look at this, there's just so many, there's just, if you look at the data at all, it's impossible. It's impossible to make the argument that these wars have benefited Americans, that they've benefited Afghans, that they've benefited Iraqi people. Um, you just can't. And I mean, by our own State Department statistics, in every place where we have bombed and invaded as part of the so-called global war on terror, terrorism has has been multiplied not decreased right and sometimes sometimes up to 1200 times the estimated rates of recruitment and training that were happening when we first invaded and so you know so th i think that that's really important to sit with and it lends itself to the question then of well then why right and and i think that that why gets at the economics. And when we look at it, our a huge portion of our economy is what Reverend Barber, I think, aptly calls a war economy. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, our, like, <laughs> there are those those maps that come out of the defense budget, the mm -hmm. um, kind of pictorial maps and or rather the yearly uh, U.S. spending budget. Right. The defense budget is always uh, the biggest piece of the pie. Um, by a lot. Right. And uh, the, the things that, you know, this is kind of what you were getting at with that hollow patriotism. Uh, 
it is it's used as a bludgeon mm-hmm. if you if you talk at all about reining in the defense budget uh, as if you you know quote don't support the troops but ultimately the people who don't support the troops are the ones who uh, have basically made VA a a husk of a department exactly these are the same people who talk about supporting the troops continually vote to slash the VA's budget where now you have like a lot of VA hospitals where they're using computers from like 1998 and it's just the hypocrisy is so obvious and it's so just right there on the surface um yep ghoulish <laughs> yeah and and I, you know i mean this is where I, I feel so furious. I feel so furious every time, you know, someone is making those kinds of comments in a leadership role because I'm just like, you don't give a fuck about me. You don't give a fuck about the troops that you were sending to kill and die. And then you cut our health care. Those troops are getting paid poverty wages in a lot of the case, right? The people who are facing the most danger, which as an officer wasn't even me most of the time, right? It's lower enlisted people who are getting recruited right out of high school to enlist and then get shipped off straight to war, right? Those are the folks who face the highest injury, death rates, and also moral injury rates. And when I say moral injury, that's the language that we've come to use to describe, like, it is PTSD, but it's not a disorder, there's nothing disordered about realizing that you've participated in catastrophic harm that you thought was for the right thing. And when you realize undeniably that there was nothing benefiting anybody about it. Right. And then you come home and you have to live with that. And, you know, and then people are patting you on the back, telling you that you're a hero and calling you a traitor. If you tell them that you're not, that there was nothing heroic about what you were sent to do by the leaders who you entrusted with your service. And, you know, when I say that troops are making poverty wages, our uh, military budget is approaching 800 billion a year. Almost half of that goes to corporations, right? So it's not even going to the troops. The vast majority of that is not even going to the troops. And so these these dog and pony shows where people are like, oh, how dare you cut private so-and-so's pay because you hate America, because you won't vote for this. It's all complete bullshit. It's all complete bullshit because private so-and-so is probably on food stamps trying to feed his family alongside 30, 40,000 other active duty military family who work full time in that capacity and still can't feed their families. It's, I mean, and then the, the cycle continues on and on and on. As yeah. you're, you're from, you know, I don't need to tell you this, you're from a military family yourself. Um, and, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious why the powers that be uh, really w- would just have alarm bells sounding off and be very frightened uh, by the idea of free public college mm-hmm. or tuition-free public college. Exactly. Uh, again, the, a lot of people say, well, why would anyone go into the military uh, after that? Right. Um, because it is, it's basically, it's one of the nation's largest tuition remission scholarship programs however you want to you want to put it um but and another thing about you know when veterans come home and there are no services you know as you said a lot of uh, a lot of military personnel do come home with ptsd uh and because there are no like again the va has been just slashed to hell there are not there are inadequate services for them to receive mm-hmm. treatment and then the thing about that and i know this because my you know i come from a conservative family as well my father was a police officer mm-hmm. uh military veterans get preferential uh screening out of the academy if they want to become police officers so mm-hmm. now you have uh maybe someone with ptsd having yeah. another job with a gun walking around the streets. Yeah. It's really, it's, 
all the implications of it are so widespread and they're so deeply entrenched in this country that it can feel really insurmountable at times. Again, an $800 billion a year defense budget, um, it feels, that number doesn't even sound real. (laughs) I know, I know. It's hard to even wrap your mind around. And like you said, you know, I'm really glad you brought up the point about the military to police pipeline because it's not even, right? Like, let's assume that person's not traumatized at all. Um, They are still trained to maximize violence, not to mi- not to minimize it, right? They are tra- that is the purpose of a military, and they are trained to look for a threat around every corner, and we and we see that in policing. But I, you know, when you look at the stats, vets who have been police officers have significantly higher complaint uh, levels of complaints around um, use of excessive force and, you know, several other things like that. And I would argue that that is partially it is about training. I don't think you fix the problem through training. I think that you fix the problem by genuinely deciding and having a conversation about what is the role of policing actually meant to be in our society. And we claim that it's for safety. And yet our police these days are trained also in this very threat around every corner, um, you know, escalate very quickly style of operating. And right. And, you know, we've seen that even non-veteran police officers are clearly not trained or not equipped at de-escalation. Right. uh, At violence de-escalation. And when you have, you know, as you said, you've, you know, you're from the time that you're 18 until, you know, you're in your 20s or 30s. If all of your training has been in the opposite direction to uh, how much work does that take to undo? And, yeah. is, and is that something that police departments are even interested in undoing? No, no, no. And that's partially, you know, I mean, there's there's the reason vets get preferential treatment is because police departments can get federal funding to cover roles for vets, right? And that program exists because the military industrial complex, and when I say that, I mean corporations that are receiving that $400 billion approximately in contracts every year, and then turn around and spend millions and millions putting some of that money back in the pockets of politicians through lobbying or campaign contributions to make sure that those dollars keep flowing, that those folks push for these kinds of policies, right? Because it really strengthens that link between the the military contracting sector it's a new market for them beyond the military right it's opening up the policing market the federal agency market right is good business for them and that's what it's about and so they have these expos they literally have expos that are like come and see all of this military militarized equipment these training opportunities that you can contract for your police department blah 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 where police go and they have the opportunity to be exposed and make deals with all of these military industrial complex corporations um and so you know i mean i think that turning towards so what do we do right because i think that i think it's so important for us to hold a just transition lens because um because this is an economic reality, right? And you'll hear folks, especially from where I'm from in the South and especially in like um, folks, you know, who who grew up in the hood or whatever and are like, well, yeah, but like the military probably saved my life or the military probably saved this person's life because it got them out of these horrible conditions and put them on a good path. And I'm like, well, that's why one, let's invest in addressing those horrifying conditions, right? Like, let's start there. That's really, and guess what? We could have a whole federal jobs program built around investment in addressing the housing conditions, the infrastructure, building up the schools, expanding school funding, right? Environmental remediation in places where our folks are literally being poisoned like they are in multiple places in Staten Island, for example, Um, because this is a random fun fact, but like, There was literally a bomb storage facility on Staten Island underneath, ironically uh, titled Veteran Park 
gear and the cancer rates in the neighborhood surrounding them that park are significantly escalated the city has known that it's radioactive they tested it several years ago it's literally radioactive making our community sick and the the solution was to put some like tape around it and signs that were like don't dig here <laughs> and so that's that's innovation that's American innovation baby right but you know so when folks are like but the jobs and the you know and like some people need this kind of program to get them out of these horrible paths that they're put on. I'm just like, I could name 25 jobs that we could have a federal jobs program that we take money that is funding these corporations and these corporate jobs and use them to actually address the harms that have been done to these communities as one of what should be, in my opinion, many forms of reparations for what we've done. And so, and, and just basic remediation, right? Like cleaning up, having environmental remediation. Imagine if we had recruiting tables in high schools that instead of being like, hey, do you wanna go travel around the world and risk your, potentially die or come home traumatized or kill people, right? Like, and by the way, we'll give you college. Like, what if it was like, we'll send you to college for, environmental studies and you know the other things that that job sector has and like put put you to work and you know in, in the new deal that was kind of the conceit of the ccc i'm also someone who deeply believes in service and i think the idea of service as we know it you know perhaps when we're growing up is just kind of military service mm -hmm. uh, going abroad to uh, uh, again spread democracy doing so great at that uh, doing doing re regime change all over the world um, but I think it could be so incredi incredibly and lastingly beneficial to have some sort of a CCC or mm -hmm. domestic service uh, that people, you know, you see that with, um, in a very small way with something like AmeriCorps or Teach for America, yeah, um, which both of those programs, of course, have their own issues. Uh, they're not perfect, but the idea that we have to go looking outside of the u.s to serve is ludicrous when there are when there are so many issues here at home um i think that and you know and also i think that public domestic service kid you know kids doing that here in their own country would engender a lot more real patriotism perhaps mm -hmm. um because i don't think that I don't know. I don't think that patriotism is inherently a bad thing. I think that the way that it is has been like weaponized and bastardized, um, mm -hmm. especially by the Republican Party, because um, patriotism is not blind loyalty. Right. That's not what it is. Um, but I think that it could help people feel a lot more connected to their neighbors, to their community, and also to different parts of their country, um, because a lot of us haven't been to, you know. It, certainly when I was 18, I had not been to like the deep South or the like most like m much of the Midwest or anything like that. Um, mm -hmm. And so I still very much believe in service. And I think that it is another one of those obvious solutions that could um, be, could just see generations of, of benefits. But if you even talk about, diverting a dollar of the defense budget yeah republicans and some democrats absolutely shit their pants yeah yeah it's hard out there <laughs> yeah but i think that the things that we have going for us are that most you know, the wars are unpopular with most people these days, including within the military. You have a situation where investment in 
programs, whether that those be, you know, job programs or just direct in, investment in agencies that we need, like a actually fully funded health agency or, you know, a fully funded VA or even better Medicare for all. Right? Oh, my like, God. Imagine. Um, Right. Like are popular. And so I think I think we are at this this moment where we just have to bring it home. Right. Bring this piece home by by supporting leaders who are willing to have the courage to say that we need to ask ourselves, is this actually serving us? Right. Is this actually serving us? And I think most people are ready to admit that it's not. Um, and that we actually, you know, our our struggle is no longer really actually where the population is. Of course, not everybody is there, but um, we've we've already turned the corner on that. It's 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 with the political establishment who is very is very connected to the the power mongering and profiteering that uh you know is it comes from the status quo. And you know, I think last time I checked, it was like. 507 out of 525 members of Congress were receiving significant contributions from the defense industry. Um, And also those, you know, those people, a lot of those members of Congress have never done a day of military service and their children will never do a day of military service. It's not, it's not their, you know, they're, as you, you said, they're, they're sending these kids to war and it's not their kids and it's right. not them. Right. And this is this is like a tale as old as time in uh in the US military. Um you yep. know, a lot of good songs that came out of the Vietnam War era about it. Uh Yeah. Yeah. Creedence Clearwater Revival Fortunate Son is exactly about this. <laughs> it's Yeah. I'm I'm going to be sent to die because I'm not a senator's son. Yeah. 100%. Well, and, you know, and I think that's so important to point out. And I also think, like, even if even the the handful, right, there might be some that are in good faith, right, like taking it really seriously. And they're just where I was at when I, you know, was deploying to a degree where they're like, okay, we know that there are some problems. We need to address the problems. But they're not at the place where they're willing to to challenge the underlying logic, right? And that's, I think that that is so critical because to your point, like, you know, the idea that we have to go elsewhere to serve is ludicrous in and of itself, but also the arrogance, the the arrogance to assume and that and that the form of help that they need is for us to come tell them how to become civilized and evolved like us, as opposed to just give resources because those countries have been gutted and haunted by colonization either for hundreds of years or continue to be, right? And there is a real arrogance um, around that that sometimes I think folks aren't always ready to face, to really challenge. The arrogance is also in the fact that we have done this for so many centuries, mm-hmm. many different countries, and the results have always been the same. Right. Uh, you know, look at, you know, Iran in the 70s uh, and or any of the dozens of South and Central American countries that we destabilized by mm. taking out their... Uh, head of state and right. installing someone who we liked, who then everyone hated. Yep. Um, you know, in I don't have to tell you that in Iraq, there has been Iraq and Afghanistan, but particularly Iraq, there has been uh, really nothing put in place uh, in a permanent way that, you know, there was just no plan. For there, the only plan is destruction. Um, so we're not. It's very. We're not interested in, in making these countries better. And again, it is extremely arrogant to be like we can make you better. Um, it's everything is very self-serving. Yeah. Oh, I don't want to end on a sad note like that, but I know. I know. I'm full of, you know, fun, uplifting stories here. <laughs> I know. So I do I do want to end on just uh, quickly talking about your campaign 
And this is for, yeah. um, for again, New York's 11th congressional district in the 2022 midterms. Um, and what aspects of your platform are you the most excited to talk to people about? Yeah, I'm excited to get working class people who already know that they have been exploited and played by, you know, the wealthy, the corporations, the political class riled up and standing in our power and saying we are the majority. We are not going to accept this idea that we have to settle anymore or that we're going to be, you know, try to get pitted against each other on this bullshit like red versus blue, left versus right. Because the truth is, is we see it in our district more so even, you know, I would argue I'm biased, obviously, but I, you know, I, I feel like we see it even more there that like it is actually top versus bottom. That's what we're really talking about. And so I am very excited. And it's an, it, you know, it's actually a perfect transition from what we were just talking about in a global sense because Staten Island, you know, it might seem like, okay, how do we connect these like big issues to Staten Islanders though, right? And and South Brooklanders. But like Staten Islanders know as much as anyone else in the city, if not more, what it's like to have developers coming in who have many of whom who have never even been to Staten Island are based in Jersey or some other place in the city and come in and are like, oh, we know what you need. We know we know how to fix your neighborhoods, how to make your borough better. And then it constantly flops. It ends up being subsidized with our tax dollars and Staten Islanders play, pay an outsized amount of taxes um, because of the nature of the like socioeconomics of the district compared to the investment that our borough gets. And you know, we know about that. We've experienced that firsthand. And so that is the common place, I think, is this underlying what is, again, really this like arrogant, patronizing logic that says we know best. We know better what your communities need than you do. And I'm really excited. I think that our district is really poised. I think that we've seen transformative campaigns that have laid the groundwork for a campaign like ours now, like you know, Father Kay's campaign, which changed the political landscape in South Brooklyn um, and many others that have left us really poised to have a historic amount of momentum and turnout um, that we're already seeing and that I think that will continue um, and carry us to a win despite the naysayers, you know? And so um, I'm proud of us. And I, you know, I say over and over that what we're really building here is not about me being something special. You know, of course, like my mom thinks I'm special and, you know, all of those things. But I, you know, it's it's not really because she's a good mom. Exactly, exactly. But it's not really about that. It's not really about me being special. It's about us doing something special together. Um and that is the the unbossed, unbought, uh, unafraid spirit of the campaign. That is a reference to Shirley Chisholm. Yep, is that you know? And some folks were like, "Well, why didn't you choose something original?" And I'm like, "Because again, it's not about it's not about me. It's not about it's it's about building on a legacy of the of of the ways that." people power and organizing have worked when people stepped up because it was necessary, not because of their career goals, not because of their ego, right? But like, because they looked around and were like, let's fight for our communities. And that's, that's the real spirit of this campaign that we're building there. Amazing. Well, how can folks find you? How can they, uh, they help out? They, hopefully send a few dollars to your campaign. Yes, please. Yeah, we're not taking any corporate PAC money or developer money, given the ways, given what I was just talking about, about the the harm developers have done in our communities. And so- So BlackRock is not welcome. <laughs> not welcome, no, shockingly. Um, <laughs> so we need all the grassroots support from all around the country. Um, and so you can find us at BrittanyForCongress.org, all spelled out normally. Um, find our website on social media. We're Brit, B-R-I-T-T, number four Congress across all of the platforms. And check us out, you know, um, get involved. You can sign up to donate and volunteer on, on the website and you can find those links on our social media as well. Um, we are going to need all the help we can get to pull this off. And I think when we pull it off, it will be historic. And so, you know, I would just encourage folks to get involved early because, 
Um, you know, as I think it was mentioned, this is for the 2022 midterms, but those midterms are going to be critical. That this is Trumpism is not dead. My opponent and current representative Nicole Maliotakis is still running. I stand with Trump ads uh, in case anyone needs a clear sense of where we're at. And, and she's being positioned as this rising so-called woman of color, like rising star in the Republican Party as a Trumpist. And that is terrifying. So we have to stop that in its tracks. A, a kind of milk toast, same as we've always had kind of centrist Democrat candidate is not going to beat her. It is not. We will lose. We will get crushed. And so that's why we started early and we are building a robust kind of Georgia style voter engagement campaign as part of our strategy. And, you know, the data supports the data supports the idea that if we do that, we can win. And so we're doing it. And, you know, we need your support now, um, even though I know folks are still kind of burned out from the last cycle. <laughs> yeah, I think there's there's always work to be done. And that can be either, you know, really overwhelming or it can be like inspiring and motivating and in keeping our eye on the ball. Absolutely. Thank you so much uh, for for speaking to me today. I'm uh, we'll we'll have to have you back, uh, hopefully, when you are Congresswoman. Uh, Would love that. Uh yeah, I, I really appreciate it. Wish you all, all the best. Thank you for doing for doing the good work. Um, and thank you for just being so engaged uh, with with your community. It's uh, it's pretty it's pretty cool. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash reply guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land.